0: OzCert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay respect to Elders, past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the OzCert podcast. Share today, save tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and for this episode, I'm joined by Kylie Watson, the chair of the National Institute for Strategic Resilience. We'll then get an update from my co-host, Beck and OSCERT's Mark Carey-Smith about what they're seeing in the local cybersecurity space. And as a special treat, they'll have an exclusive announcement of a new keynote speaker who'll be at the OSCERT conference in May this year. They'll also give us the latest on events and training that AusCert will be running in the coming weeks. We look forward to bringing you the best of the Australian cybersecurity industry with fascinating insights, great stories from the field, and lessons you can take back to your workplace to better protect your organisation's critical assets. Hi, Kylie. Thanks for making the time to join us today. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into cybersecurity?
1: Yeah, hi. I actually am both a technologist and a sociologist. I started off my career in engineering in the military and did a bit of a jump during the global financial crisis over to IT. I headed up analytics and data, so I did a lot of work in there. And really interestingly, it was an accident coming into cybersecurity. I had uh, data and analytics teams that were doing root cause analysis on data. In particular, a good example is performance reporting in a hospital. And they were coming out with all these anomalies and, and really unusual things like midwives were saying that men were having babies in the maternity wards. And we're going, hang on, how can you get that wrong? Like, I know that the world is changing, but really there was a high percentage of men that was supposedly given birth. And you might wonder, well, how does that go to cybersecurity? So we probed further and discovered that these nurses saw themselves as operational, tactical, in there, their job was nursing, it wasn't data entry. So they had to, as part of their job, do the data entry though. So they were just flicking off their passwords to random people, you know, clerks coming through, there are board clerks, they're busy, there's a million things going on. And so we found a lot of password issues. And then I was working with a utilities company and we discovered that they had passwords in the top uh, pockets while they're walking around and some of them hadn't been changed for like 15 months, 16 months, and they'll just pull out their card maybe and give it to someone else to enter some data. And I went, right, we've got to put on some security analysts and people in the consulting space and correct this, you know, and it started off with that, that typical password issue. And then it grew, right? And we then had other security issues, compromises, security operations centres it's a major skill shortage out there in that area and they were looking for you know these problems to be solved so i built a cybersecurity team when i was with a previous company that you know really looked at solving these client problems in the security space i ended up having to go back to uni and study a cybersecurity IT degree. <laughs> because I had all these really amazing, great people and I knew data and analytics, you know, and I, yeah. I knew all the other aspects of what I had to do, but all of a sudden I'm running a team and it's growing 20, 30, 40, 50 people and they're coming to me and I'm going, I don't know these acronyms, I don't know, you know, really. I, I had an idea and I could run it, but I really wanted to get into it and it was interesting. And because I had that sociology, I started getting right into the threat intelligence, threat sharing, you know, threat vectors, all that type of thing. So I, I sort of fell in
0: to it and that's really interesting it's funny it, every person we speak to for this podcast says they got into cyber in a very indirect way it came yes. it was a thing that happened along the way they go hey that's pretty cool let's go there yep. but that sociology background that that's quite unique i mean there's only a couple of people i know that have made very senior roles in in technology, like Genevieve Belzov, you know, another I love one. I Genevieve. She's yeah. my crush. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who's, you know, yeah. another person who's come from that similar left field. I yes. think she's anthropologist. an anthropologist. Yes. Okay. Yep. But she's come from that left field side into technology. Yes. And that's it's really interesting. Do you think that that diverse way of thinking thinking is actually how big an asset has that been to you coming into this
1: It's been a huge asset. I find again and again and again that um, I'm providing you know a very different lens and so we talk about diversity of thinking and we talk about if we're going to solve these big wicked problems that are arising these threats that are coming through faster than ever before we need to look at things differently through another lens and I'm constantly able to do that. So right. I think it's really important and you're right there's not many of us. I did have Another cyber sociologist reached out to me a few weeks ago on LinkedIn and went, oh, I'm so excited. I found another one. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, there's a few of us. It's okay. But other psychology, I I spoke at a conference about four or five years ago, and I was saying then there's not enough done in the space of psychology for cybersecurity. And then I went back to do some um, more research and discovered that not much has really changed. And this is, you know, four or five years later. So that concerns me.
0: Mm, That's It's actually interesting, and particularly because... When we start talking about this in nation-state terms, yes. we are, we're not dealing with technical attacks specifically, but we're actually dealing with something very different. It's not just purely a, I want to get some money. You know, you know we often joke, you know, it's why do bad guys rob banks? It's because that's where the money is. But yeah. that's not the same motivation here. So when you talk about nation-state attacks... Being a sociologist, that's actually be a pretty big leg up or an advantage.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, there's whole areas that look at psychological operations in warfare. That's been for many, many, many years, hundreds, thousands of years. Even in the Australian military, there's a major general responsible for information warfare. And, and But what we're finding um, more and more from the, the nation state perspective is they're very sophisticated. And... You know, there's examples of regimes without naming names, but let's just say regimes, totalitarian states, various other countries that... You know have this as a sophisticated exercise so you know I've, I've got here in front of me a legend which shows you know a particular country has categories of hundreds of people and, and branches and they've got overall cyber warfare cyber warfare development hacking and espionage cyber defense cyber psychology operations and domestic monitoring you know which would make us all cringe and get a bit scared in the western world but yes yeah, so that is replicated you know, across the world in, mm. in a number of different areas. And well, it's I was a say, it doesn't threat. matter
0: whether we're talking about allies or non-allies. I don't, I'm not sure we can even use the word enemies no. in this world anymore because that doesn't make sense. No. But when you've got people who are we know are allies because we've got you know treaties written with yes. them and stuff like that, and we've got other countries that we don't have treaties with, yep. everyone's in this. Yes. Like whether you're yes. talking about Australia or the mm-hmm. United States or any other country in the world. Everyone's playing in this game now. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that that's changing the, you know, the, the theatre of war quite substantially? Like, you know, do you see a, do you see a future where we're still going to send, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers into a military theatre to, to have active physical combat?
1: Yeah, look, before I answer that, I think one of the key things to recognise is how the landscapes change. So traditionally if you were defending so in traditional warfare it it was actually considered to be an advantage now that might sound a bit strange but you know your environment you know your supply chains you know you you know what you've got those coming in and attacking are usually coming into new territory they don't have the supply chains they don't know the environment that well they don't have you know intel or espionage implanted in there necessarily and so what cyber has done is switch that Because with cyber, it is easier to attack than it is to defend, because all you have to do is find one vulnerability. Whereas when you're defending, you've got hundreds, thousands of potential vulnerabilities. You're constantly on alert. There's no switching off you know, at the moment. So in, in traditional warfare, it's sort of on or you off, right? We're, we're constantly under attack in inverted commas. And so the nature of that has actually switched very much. Mm. And and I think in answering your question, I see it very much as a either augmented warfare approach or a hybrid warfare approach, mm. because at the end of the day, humans still have to be in the loop.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. Like one of my friends, Dr. Hugh Thompson, got his PhD back in the 90s, counting, Windows vulnerabilities. Yes, back when yes. you could count yes. Windows vulnerabilities. Whereas now, now, you know, it's a different world. Like we, and the thing is, when we talk about the vulnerabilities, actually, because all the the low hanging fruit's been picked. Yes, we're dealing with things that are actually harder to execute, but potentially far more damaging should they be should they be exploited
1: and and it's true and a report came out from ibm fairly recently that said um that it's usually a minimum of 200 days that someone's in your system before you find them
0: yeah like how scary is that that's right i said you know well you know six months later they've been there and i think when you know some of the really well publicized hacks you know and target's probably the big one that everyone kind of remembers from 2013 yeah that the bad guys were in there for about six months working their way through laterally until they got from aircon to a point of sale
1: yeah, exactly. And look at the gas pipeline one at the moment. You That's know, right. Impacted yep. the east coast of America. How long were they in that system for? Mm. You know, what does that actually look like? You know, we'll, we'll get more information as that progresses, and it's still yeah. an ongoing thing. But yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, very very challenging.
1: Attribution is really interesting. It's actually a psychological thing because. Humans have to attribute to something, right? So you get to legal frameworks, you get to international legislation. And this is why humans, going back to your question before, have to be in the loop. Because we do have to, we feel we have to attribute it to something. And and that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Because is very difficult to do that inside but then when you start you know attributing then you start getting into foreign policy foreign relations and the blame game just starts Mm. to really escalate and you can see at the moment with australia and various things that are going on in the um the international context of the trade and and Mm. that with various partners that you know it starts getting really messy but yeah attribution and trying to find you know who is at the center of it isn't necessarily just a technology approach because you really also need motive it's a bit like traditional criminal investigation what is the motive what is the context why would they be trying to get us
0: so and that's really interesting because when you start talking about you know you mentioned their foreign policy and those kinds of impacts you know when you start talking about foreign policy international relations social and political fabric i mean it's it's almost the fabric of society now has got this this technological undertow or undercurrent underneath it yeah you know what does that kind of mean like what do you kind of expect to see in the future from that
1: yeah, look, I'm not a, a futurist. I don't think it's going away. I think it's still escalating and it, it may go away you know, thousands of years. I don't know. We, we, it's The world's moving so fast. It's really hard to predict, you know, what, mm. what's going to be happening, who predicted COVID-19 and someone will put well, up their hand I mean, and say, well, I did, you know. But it's interesting but... when you talk about
0: the pandemic and in fact, another guest on the podcast actually said, well pretty much every epidemiologist in the world predicted that there was a pandemic yes. coming yes. no one predicted that in you know january 2019 stuff would go sideways but no. everyone predicted it was going to happen at some point and we should be ready for it
1: and there there are trends and i think you need to look at that like Mike Pajullo, you know, in the media with his Anzac Day address recently talking about the drums of war, you know, and how they were ignored in the 30s and 40s, you know, leading into the, the next war. And then we start to look at, I think, Professor I think it's Professor John Coyne from I'm um, talking about there's going to be a war in the next 10 years what concerns me about that is we're going back to that psychology is there's a a, a psychology called confirmation bias. So those of us working in security and heavily embedded Mm -hmm. in it, and both of those men are makes us start to get a bit, um, suspicious and makes us start to think and look for signs and signals, and then makes us start to look for things to confirm our sensitivities or what we Mm -hmm. think might be happening. So if you're in a security operations center and you're constantly uh, looking and patching at malicious activity, and you're, under you know being bombarded Mm -hmm. every day then and if you're like these other men who are at the forefront you know of a lot of these things that are going on you start to then really believe your own rhetoric and then you start (laughs) to see everything as leading towards that right where we're going to have a war it's confirmation bias you know it's confirming their suspicions and we had to be really careful as a society that we just take a bit of a step back from that because Mm -hmm. we could find ourselves in a war where we didn't actually want it and maybe it didn't really need to happen. And maybe it was the rhetoric that spun that up and turned that into a thing. Mm. So we have to be really careful and go back to the psychology side mm. of it and look at why are we thinking mm. like this?
0: It's very interesting. I've, you know, I often think about, you know, if you've got a burglar and a police officer standing in front of a house, the, the police officer will look at all the potential risk points yes. and the burglar will look at all the opportunity points yes. and they're looking at exactly the same thing. And it's that, isn't it? It's yes, often we, it we look at the evidence and we interpret it with our own lenses. And, and that's
1: why we need diversity. That's why we need um, to make sure that we have different mindsets at the table. So we need people from different cultural backgrounds, people from... If you look at the Chinese, like there's a, a different way of thinking or style of thinking. And, you know... it it's not necessarily the same as ours at times so mm. you know you've got to look at that you've got to look at gender you've got to look at you know different yeah. lifestyles and stuff you've got to get everyone's perspective and that's what breeds mm. a resilient society in, in you know trying to get everyone far all their ideas their thoughts you know and found, and that's really hard right we're not there yeah. we've never done that and
0: it's interesting because in the west the western democratic world we tend to think in election cycles, you know, and I think, you know, Joe Biden's government now in the United yes. States is already saying, we've just done our hundred days. We've probably only got another 18 months or not even until we're, well, we've got like a year until they're campaigning for midterms. Yes. And depending on the, what happens in the midterms or in the term of the next two years of which 50% is going to be spent on campaigning for the next election cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So you're struck with short term thinking. Yes. Whereas when you're talking about a regime like, for example, the Chinese government, where you've got massive continuity, you think in tens mm. and twenties or thirties or more yes. of years. You know, they talk about, you know, they potentially talk about 50 year strategies. when we can't talk about 50-hour strategies.
1: Exactly. And it is the very nature of a democratic society that it's our strength and in some ways, perhaps Mm. it's our weakness as well. But it's interesting you mention you're with the US because I'm also the chair of the National Institute for Strategic Resilience was created quite recently. And it was a bit of a thinking there about the fact that we're watching what was going on in the US and we're watching that divide in the social fabric and saying, how as Australians can we make sure that we build a more resilient society? Not just to, very much from the cyber perspective and security perspective, but how can we gather all these opinions, all these ideas and all these mindsets, mm. put it all together and actually build a more you know resilient yeah. Australia?
0: But obviously, I mean, resilience part of it is about physical support and infrastructure. And when we talk about cyber it is the you know detect you know incident detection and it is you know having ai and ml models that can you know you know sift through hundreds of thousands or even millions of records in a seam and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But there's still a human element to all of this. Yes. And it's that you know how is that how do you modify or how do you influence that behavioral and social bit to become more resilient?
1: Yeah, I think there's um, a number of ways. What I immediately think of when you know, you mention that is the SISO, under pressure. You know, they're constantly under attack. They're constantly having to report to the board. They're always bearing negative news. Uh, and this is just in BAU. Right, so they're always patching, they're always scanning, they're always, you know, it, it's quite a, a relentless, you know, activity that what they do and their stuff. And if you look at recent figures, say so that 88% of CISOs feel like they're under stress. So you can imagine how their staff and operations people feel and also the turnover like is every few years or so, because there's mm. a lot of personal responsibility as well in, in mm. being a size in being in that space and feeling, oops, I didn't see that. I let that in, you know, if an actual attack occurs. And then you go to, you know, when the attack occurs, oh, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just overwhelming, right? Because when you are there and you've been in there and I'm, I'm not sure you've been in this environment, mm, but have, yeah. yeah. So you get it like you, you don't sleep, you hardly eat, you know, Oh, you don't get to your kids, you know, piano recitals. All of a sudden you're on the phone to the minister, to the ACSC, to executives, the board, your own team. Mm. You're still trying to, you know, kick them out as such. Yeah. Or oh, we'll find out, you know, what's actually going on. And it, you just, you know, are under extreme pressure. Mm. And that leads to the next part is, you know, I look at the Battle Smart programs brought into the Australian military back in 2009, and I worked on the mental health model and the deployment of that a few years later after the DUNT report. And you know, they were looking at how could we actually you know, build this resilience in our soldiers. And what I really loved about it and sorry, I say soldiers because I ex army, sorry, mm. uh, in our military personnel. What I loved about it was it included the public servants. So it wasn't just Army, army Navy, Air Force. It was also the public servants. Mm. And I look at that program, and, and yes, it could it's not a be-all and end-all, but... What we don't have in Australia is an all-encompassing, broad support program or resilience program um, that helps, you know, the the victims of ransomware, the the victims of the Nigerian princes, you know, that we see everywhere, and then the nation states and what's going on there. And there's Fragmented, there's Beyond Blue, there's your Employee Assistance Program, you know. There's different elements or things that you could seek out. And I know the Australian Cybersecurity Centre, so Abby Bradshaw has been really big on trying to raise community awareness, and they've had recent campaigns Starting with ransomware, but where they're not at, you know, and where they will eventually get to. But it's still, you know, we're talking about this is still quite new, you know, mm. really in the scheme of technology. There's not an actual battle smart kind of equivalent across Australian society where if you're a victim, you know, you could of cyber, you could go and actually mm. get the support. So well, you can at the moment, people burble, can, but,
0: yeah, I mean, every you get burgled, everyone goes, Oh, that's terrible, you know, someone broke into your house, they've invaded your privacy, but. We don't see cyber through that same lens, no, do we? No, And yeah. it's
1: more invasive because it's the mind as well. So when we're starting to look at uh, things like psyops, we're, we're actually trying to capture the mind. And one of the, the great things in the Iraq war, one of the ways they were getting the Iraqi soldiers to surrender was by throwing them free bananas. Because bananas were a thing, right? They couldn't get bananas. They loved bananas, as yeah. so they were saying. Like, you hey, if you we want can, bananas, we can, you can,
0: we can feed you. <laughs>
1: yes, with well, you, you know mm. this luxury fruit. So mm. you never look at bananas the same way again. But yeah. you know, it, it, it is interesting. I think we do need to think more about that. But we haven't even got the psychology research right mm. yet in cyber. So it's a long way off.
0: So it's, it's like the, the answer to war is find the other team's banana. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's a bit like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You find their weakness.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Or, the, or, or the thing they're actually wanting. It's yeah. Really, it's not about yeah, a weakness. Yeah. It's, it's actually about what is, you know, when, we, when you do negotiation theory, you talk about what's the zone of potential agreement. What's their what's yes. their thing that they're going to agree on? Yeah. And um, if it's a banana, so yeah. be it. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so that, that whole psyops you know, yeah. side of it. And, and like I said, it's been going on forever and there's some great examples through history. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the resilient will need some help. You know, it's about the ability to recover. I think humans innately are pretty good at recovering. Look at COVID and how mm. we're getting through that right now. But I think we do need more support mechanisms in place and we do need to raise awareness with mm. the, the little old ladies that get scammed, you know, at the bank yeah. and the people. And you know,
0: people, yeah, they get they get a pity party. Or they'll get a, oh, they shouldn't have been so silly or, you know, they'll get criticism, but they won't get support necessarily, you know, in the broad sense. So one last question, just as we come to the end of our time. Um, What advice would you give for someone coming into the world of cyber and trying to make a career?
1: Yeah, look, I think it's an exciting career. I think you need to be prepared uh, that there are stress elements as with any job, but, you know, it is an environment that is always evolving. You do have to keep up with the technology. You are, there are attacks on, you know, many fronts. You, for me, like I said, I had to go back and actually learn it. So it's very hard to go into it, you know, and learn by osmosis. Uh, I think one of the key things is get certifications, do your research, you know, ask people inside about how they got in there. There's many doors. It's a skill, a significant skill shortage. Mm. So, you know, I am training up a number of people on the job, but also saying to them, I need you to go and do, you know, CISM or CISP or whatever through, you know, certifications. As we go in the old days, well, with any job, you usually wait for the qualification, you know, and then you move mm. forward. I think in any industry I've been in consulting in, we grab them if they they look like they're interested and they're, you know, a good mm. worker. and It's more know, like an apprentice system
0: now, isn't it? It's yeah, learn on the job and back it, it and back up with the education for yeah. theory, the theory, of the stuff that you you need to know, but you don't necessarily get on the job.
1: Yeah, because I think the ones that have been in it for the longest are usually the ones with an ex-military backgrounds or the ones that start off in networks or telecommunications. You know, they're the ones I find that have been in it the longest. The majority have been in there very short term. So, mm. yeah, it's very evolving. Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: Now it's over to the team from Osset. Beck chats with AusCert's Mark Carey-Smith about the importance of personal and organizational resilience, as well as the big news of an exciting new keynote speaker for the upcoming AusCert conference.
2: Thanks, Anthony. Excited to be back for another month. Today, I've got Mark Carey-Smith joining me from AusCert. How are you doing today, Mark?
3: Really well, Beck. How are you?
2: I'm great. Excited to be back for another month of our podcast journey. Um probably a good time for us to thank Kylie as well. Thank you for giving us your time, Kylie. I wanted to sort of pick up on that resilience thing with you, Mark, and, and you're someone that I know thinks a lot about resilience from many different aspects. So I'm pleased to have you to chat today. Um, but I think a good place to start would be ID Care. I know that was something that wasn't mentioned in the interview. Look, they are a partner of Osset and we are a strong supporters of ID Care. Can you tell us a bit more about what they can do as an organisation and help people with resilience?
3: Sure. So IDcare is a non-profit organisation based in Queensland and they help both individuals and organisations in Australia and New Zealand deal with scams, cybersecurity incidents and identity theft. They have a real human-centric approach to how they deliver their services, which is really important in this context because they support people through what can be very traumatic and stressful situations. They also provide educational resources on their website and via email-based newsletters. And they have a really good sense of humour. That That's one of the things I really love about ID Care. Is it's not just that they provide useful information and they're really good at, at analysing their own data, but they do it in a really light and in, interesting way.
2: Very human approach, I like that too.
3: Yeah, it's actually a bit of fun to read their newsletter. And they also do a little thing where they review a social media app each month and they talk about the privacy elements of certain apps. They also do what they've been doing late last year, late 2021 and into 2022, is they've been traveling around the country doing cyber resilience outreach clinics, or they use the CROC acronym, where they've actually been going out to regional and remote communities and spreading awareness and actually helping people on the ground which is pretty great not many people actually get to do that face-to-face work that's
2: a great resource isn't it that's amazing yeah i, I have to admit i usually only think about them you know as a reactive service which is sometimes what people only think about also too so it's like oh i in, i'm in trouble i'll contact id care so i love that there's that focus on awareness and outreach and and getting people more aware and not just waiting till something has happened to contact them
3: yeah, that's right. I mean, we know that that prevention is so much better than cure, not just in terms of time and money, but emotional effort and stress.
2: Yes. And that's that's very much the theme of resilience, right?
3: Yeah, that's right.
2: Fantastic. I think just from there, I guess there's a lot of parallels that I'm seeing. And you know, you know, there's the way, you know, that we deal with things personally, there's cybersecurity awareness, there's organizational resilience. There's a lot of Parallels and overflow between those three. You know, we're we're not just humans at home and then employees at work. We continue that journey. What is your take there on on, our resilience and, and how that helps in both work and personal life?
3: Yeah, it's a good question. And when when I do cybersecurity awareness training, I always talk about people's personal situations as well as their professional context for a number of reasons. One, It just helps the content be more engaging. It helps people understand that cybersecurity is something that everybody should be aware of. And it's a digital life skill these days. And if we only ever talk about people's professional lives, then we're missing a very large part of who they are. And by helping people understand the risks they face at home, it also helps them understand how those risks can be translated into their professional life. And hopefully it gives them some impetus to have some conversations with their children about online safety and perhaps older friends or relatives who have grown up in a different world in terms of trust. That how we establish trust is very different in an online context than what it is in a face-to-face context. And we, as humans, we haven't really evolved very quickly to, to, to adapt to this new situation so giving people some tools or some information that can help spark conversations in any context is really critical, I think, to normalising the material and helping to spread the message that there's little things that everyone can do to help protect themselves, their families and their, their workplaces.
2: Fantastic. Yeah, I, I guess that the key message there is that those habits work all the way around, not just when you clock on to, to work in the morning and clock off in the afternoon, it's, it's so important all day, and and like you said, you're sharing it with your families and and other people, so that we can. It's, it shouldn't be something that you're suddenly aware of when you start your career. It should be something that's all part of everyone's life.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Right. Well, I guess that's a, a really nice segue for me because um, working on the offset conference, which is coming up in May, so it's our 22nd conference, which I can't believe, and that our theme is rethink, reskill, reboot, which covers a lot of things, and 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 I. I really want people to realize it's not just a technical solution. That is for people, that is for our skills, that is for our resilience. So I'm really excited that we've got it. we're have we going to have a little sneak peek here today about a keynote that we're going to have at the conference. And we haven't put this anywhere else. So this is just for our podcast listeners at the moment. Oh, exclusive. Exactly. I've never given an exclusive before, which is a bit exciting. So yeah, we've got Kath Koshal as one of our keynote speakers. She's from the Kindness Factory. I don't want to spoil too much, but do you want to tell people a little bit about why she knows
3: so much about resilience and why that theme is so strong with her. Yeah, so Kath has a quite an amazing and inspiring story of how she faced some really, really difficult situations in her life and was able to find a better path, I guess you could say, in in, in terms of figuring out where kindness could be a central part of her identity and how she lived her life, and all the incredible flow on effects that created.
2: Yeah, I really love that link of kindness and resilience as well, because I think it goes a long way in all aspects of our life. And you know, if everybody was just that little bit kinder, what a different world we would live in. So I hope that that's going to be a really good takeaway for everybody at the conference. And I'm excited that everyone will get to hear from her and hear more about her journey.
3: Yeah, I think it's awesome that, you know, one of the things we try and do in the conference is not just stick to the straight and narrow in terms of what cybersecurity is. It may, it, it's, it's a lot of things to a lot of people. And, you know, when we talk about resilient organisations, then organisations are really a sum of their parts. And one of the most part, one of the most important parts, arguably the most important are people. And so when we can have greater resilience in individuals, then we can have greater resilience in our organisations. And I think people looking after themselves, being kind to others, but also being kind to themselves is a really important part of individual resilience, and then that flows on to organisational resilience.
2: Yeah, and it's a such a key message. You know, we've been talking through OSERT for the last few years. We're very passionate, obviously, about mental health and, and people looking after themselves and each other. So I feel like this is another nice piece of the puzzle to 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 click into that as well. Yeah, so just a, a reminder, the program will be released very shortly. We've just actually had a, a big week this week. The program committee met and reviewed all the submissions, which is always a, a fun process for us. It's a it's an interesting process. Uh, it was Mark's first time being on our program committee. I don't know if it gave you a different insight, Mark, because um, Mark's obviously been a, a presenter at the conference before, but the seeing behind the scenes, and I don't think people really appreciate the time, the effort, the thinking that goes into that. So just for our listeners, a, a quick overview, there's every submission that we receive is reviewed by four separate people on our committee. Uh, and the committee is made up of not just OSCERT people, but industry perspectives as well. So there's a balanced approach there. And then we we go through those submissions. So they've had their four um, scores from our reviewers, and then we have to debate them as, as a whole committee decide which makes the program. So there's a lot of a lot of time spent in there researching who the presenters are, what their topics are, how that will look. Will that be beneficial to our delegates? So is there anything that you learnt this week, Mark, that you were surprised at?
3: Well, look, firstly, it was just really nice to be on the other side of the fence and see what goes into all the deliberations and the discussions that that occur to figure out how to put together a program and not just not just who's speaking and on what topics they're speaking, but how to order them and how to how to have some theming so that the topics kind of run together in a way that can help make it easier for participants, for for audience members to figure out, oh, that's interesting and that's very really similar. I might just stay here in this room and then I can see three things back to back that are of interest to me. But yeah, I think the whole process of having so many different perspectives, not just where people work but the kinds of work that they perform as well I think that was really interesting to see different people's perspectives it was really so collegiate and cooperative it was actually a really pleasant place to be which you can't often (laughs) say for long meetings with lots of people so yeah it was a good experience.
2: I'm so glad that we could have you as part of the committee this year it's I have to admit it's one of my favorite days where I feel like you know, after that happens, you know, the conference really starts to take shape because we've got this program, obviously, but I love that process where people are sharing and, you know, and by the end of the day, when we're trying to slot those things into the program and I'm I'm loving people going, oh, but now you've made it hard for me. I don't even know which stream I'm going to go to because there's things clashing. And, and I think that's when I know that we've got a strong program when you've got that tussle about, oh, which one will I go to? And how am I going to split my time? That's my favorite.
3: Yeah, it's so nice. It's such a luxury to have lots of interesting things that you want to see. Um, we probably all had the experience where you're at a conference and you look at the program and think, I don't like any of this. So it was so good to be able what to go. What will I do
2: during that time? Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. So that, that was great to, to, to feel excited about the, the really interesting speakers that we have and the people that are putting on tutorials as well. It's so great that people give up their time to, to provide those services to help increase our the skills and knowledge of our of our members and thanks very much to everyone that who submitted a proposal it's it's so great that people want to be part of the conference
2: exactly the tutorials always make me very proud because we are so lucky with how many submissions we get and you know, like, don't get me wrong, like presentations take a lot of work too, but it's, you know, we're, we're comparing a 35 minute presentation to a whole day in a lot of cases here. So I, I, I don't take that for granted when someone puts in a submission going, I will prepare all this content and train people for an entire day. You know, it's not just that, conference week where that is going to take their time you know it's it's a lot of time a lot of effort a lot of coordination and we're so lucky that we get to deliver those to our delegates as part of conference registration and it's, it's something I'm really proud of that we you know people can leave the conference and go I've got new skills from the tutorials I've done some great networking I've learned some great things through the program I've had some fun along the way as well because that's also really important that's why I think I'm so excited about the conference it's all those little things coming together to build that whole atmosphere.
3: The the conference presentations are always good, but I I think I actually prefer the tutorials in many ways. Having conducted a few tuts and participated in, in some as well, those connections that you make with people and the satisfaction of running a tutorial when it goes really well, it's it's pretty great.
2: Awesome. All right. So just a reminder, the dates are the 10th to the 13th of May. We're back at the star where we were last year, and we will be in hybrid mode again for those that can't join us in person. But I do hope that we will see more of our favorite faces in that room together. It has been a long time. It feels even longer because of what's gone on last year. We won't even mention those words, but yeah, excited to see a whole bunch of people with us in May. Thanks for joining me today, Mark. Pleasure. Great to, great to chat. And yeah, we'll see you next month.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the AusCert podcast. Thanks to our guest, Kylie, and a special thank you to my co-host, Beck. We'll be back next month with new guests and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. If you want to know more about AusCert, be sure to visit auscert.org.au.